Good morning, EBF. I just want to say that uh, as Chelsea was talking about community and why we need close-knit community and intimacy and all that, she preached about a third of my sermon just there, so, and way more concisely, but I hope you don't mind a little redundancy with that. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I've been hit by a car exactly three different times in my life. The first time I was 14 in my hometown of Rochester, Minnesota, uh, riding my bike on the sidewalk along 18th Avenue, and as I came across an intersection, 19th Street, I was crossing it over, and as I entered it, and I wasn't paying very close attention to the lights because the cross-traffic light turned green as I was entering into the intersection. So I, like, noticed, and I tried to scurry through to get out of the way quick, and there was two cars headed westbound. Now, the first car saw me and kind of lurched forward but stopped so they didn't hit me. The second car did not see me. Um, and so they just accelerated, and we met each other in the intersection. Uh, my bike, the Raleigh M80, was one of the greatest bikes I ever owned, got swept out from under me and thrown across traffic. I flopped on the hood of the car, and she slammed on her brakes, and I slid off and landed on the pavement. I was not wearing a helmet, and it would take a few more lessons for me to figure that out, too. But uh, I actually, like, miraculously was not very harmed. I, I had some road rash on my arm from falling on the pavement, but I stood up. I, I found my bike. I gathered it and dragged it over to the sidewalk. Uh, she was freaking out. She pulled over. She's worried about me and trying to make sure I'm okay. Uh, but honestly, like, in that moment, I knew, like, I, I felt like I had done something completely wrong. So when she approached me and asked me if I was, I just said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I felt terrible that I had just done this, that I had just gotten in this, in this little crash. And uh, yeah, and I, I tried to assure her that I was fine, and I really didn't want this to get any worse, because I was not sure what kind of trouble I would get if, in if we called police or anything like that. So I was like, no, I'm fine. I just want to go home. I'm so sorry. Please, I'm so sorry. Do I, you know, do I have to do anything? And she was like, no. And I basically, I convinced her that we just go our separate ways. Um, and uh, I hopped on my bike. The wheel was all bent. I had to dismantle the front rim brake. Uh, and then I just pedaled home with the wheel wobbling like the last couple miles home. Uh, and I remember even getting home. My dad was there and I told him what happened. I was kind of worried he'd be mad. Uh, but he honestly, he, like his reaction, like he just felt such compassion in that moment. He just hugged me without even saying much. Just, um, are you okay? And, uh, and it, was, like, it wasn't really until that point that I actually got emotional about it. I started just crying because I just, like it sort of like all rushed in to realize like what a scary thing that was just down. Um, but, uh, okay, so second time, I was uh, at college. Uh, I was a valet driver uh, down in West Loop during my years at Moody Bible Institute. And, uh, and so I worked for a group of restaurants right off Randolph. And, uh, and one restaurant I was working for one night called Red Light, close to the intersection of Randolph and uh, Halstead or something. Anyways, um, so we... Uh, I'm sitting out there, it's like the rush hour, busiest hour, we're collecting cars, people are coming in to eat, and, uh, and there's, we're on this little side road, so there's a bit of a backup, and there's a taxi driver that's getting super impatient, right, because all these cars are in the way, he wants to get through. Um, so he finds, like, one of the car pulls off just enough, I'm standing over on the side of the car, and he finds just enough space to eke through that car, and he accelerates through, and as he's doing that, he brushes up against me. And then he stops, because he realized he brushed up against me, and I 
got so angry. I smacked his car to let him know how furious I was. And when he did that, he threw his, his, uh, his car in park. He got out of his car. I just walked over. We met in the front of his hood. And we just started screaming at each other. We were just yelling, both of us, over each other, just screaming. It was a big scene. People are standing on the streets looking at us, trying to figure out. And it's just like escalating. It's boiling up more and more. Now, it happened to be there's a, there's a police officer named Al who worked that street on foot all the time. Uh, especially in busy times. So he was actually really close by, and he sees the commotion, and he comes over, and he kind of just, he threw cold water on the situation uh, to, got us to go our separate ways. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and thankfully so, because I, it was really not going to stop escalating from there. Uh, but I was furious. I was raging at this guy. I, oh man, I was so Mad, I just felt, I just wanted to yell at him and more. Uh, like, I was just furious that he, how dare he hit me and then yell at me out over that. Third time. Happened just about maybe two and a half months ago. I was riding my bike up Sheridan Road past the Baha'i Temple, as I often do, like every week. Um, I was coming around to sort of a bend after, after the Baha'i Temple, and then there's an entrance into Gilson Park, right? Uh, right off to the right. So I'm riding up, and there's a bike lane there. And so I'm in the bike lane, and I'm riding my bike, and a car pulls up alongside me, going faster than me, but not very fast. Um, and all of a sudden, sort of out of nowhere, they just turn right, sort of like this kind of surprising right into, the, uh, into Gilson Park, and right as I'm coming up. And so we, like, I hit my brakes just in time. Like, I was able to cut my speed down a lot, and they were not going very fast to begin with, but we bumped into each other. It was just a small collision. In fact, I didn't even fall on the ground. My wheel hit the front, and I kind of banked off and uh, got off my bike, and I could feel that rage coming back, you know? And the person, they stop, and they get out of the car, and they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. They were immediately apologizing profusely. They knew they screwed up. And they were apologizing and asking me if I'm okay. And they were just worried about me. And, and it, it was, I, for a moment, I really actually struggled to know how to react to that. Because I wanted to be, I just want to let them have it, right? But they're already owning everything. They're already totally apologizing and agreeing. And, and they definitely believe that they're in the wrong. So I, like, there's not a case to be won here. It's already settled. But I, I, and so I'm like, what do I do? Just be okay with the fact that this hit me? I you know, just walk, just tell them it's fine, like that's okay, just hit people, I don't care, like no, right, or like I just didn't know what, I had all these feelings, I'm like I don't even know what to do with this now, because these people are, are owning it, and taking responsibility, and they're just like, we're so sorry, we're tourists, we're from Iowa, we didn't know where we were, we're just, we just so, we just not want to, <laughs> so I really like, I was like stuck with words, and, and I, I just, all I could really muster was, can you just please be more careful around bikers? And they were like, yes, no, we'll be really careful about bike. And so I continued. I actually, it was the beginning of my ride. I finished the bike ride. It was really like, it was fine. Like, I checked my wheel to make sure that was okay, and that was fine. So I knew there was no damage done. There was no harm, really. And, uh, and so we went our separate ways. Um, but anyways, uh, as we finish up our, uh, our series on Jude, uh, I, the point that I want to make from Jude, the message that I want to bring this morning that I think Jude brings to us, He's going to talk a lot about mercy. And the message is this. Your first reaction to the trauma, to attack, to the sin of others, to bad situations, your first reaction doesn't have to be your final reaction. 
I want to explain that more in a little bit. But let's open up with a word of prayer. And then we'll continue on. We'll dive into the text. Father, we know that you see us. You hear us. You know us. And you know what we need from you. This morning we ask that you will fill us with your spirit and teach us to obey your voice. So many times we allow feelings of anger or hurt or shame dictate our perspective and our present circumstances. But God, right now we ask for your perspective. Would you show us what to do? Show us where to go from here, God. And would you speak to us through your word this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so quick review on what we've talked about so far in the book of Jude. Uh, the, the church Jude is writing to has come under the attacks of false teachers. They are blatant in their sin. They are making false claims uh, to justify their sin, and they are intending to drag genuine believers down with them. Jude sees what's going on. He recognizes that this is not just people attacking Christians, but actual spiritual warfare going on in which Satan is attacking God by trying to weaken the church. And in writing this letter, Jude makes no time to address the false teachers themselves. He's not bothering to warn them, to to call them to repentance. He's written a letter to the victims of those false teachers. His desire is to strengthen the church. And, uh, and he wants believers who have been victimized by these attacks to be strengthened, to be empowered, to be contenders for the faith. So we started a list. Number one, we trust the gospel. These are our action points for a contender for the faith. We, we trust the gospel. Number two, we speak up and we speak out when we see lies, when we see attack, when we see sin happening. We claim victory in Christ because we know this is spiritual warfare and we know how it ends. As messy as the battle may get, we know that the victory has been won and we can claim that victory. And we're going to add two more items to that list today. So we pick up in verse 17. Um, in verse, these first few verses, 17, 18, 19, they remind us that this kind of attack False teachers attacking the church, trying to weaken the church, was always expected. It was always going to happen. And now that it has, here's what we should do about it. Let me read out of verse, starting verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So our first, or our, well, our fourth action point that we're going to add to our list is this. We're going to keep each other close to the love of God. Keep each other close to the love of God. Now you notice I, I switched each other with yourselves, and there's a reason for that. This, book, this, this letter is written to a church. This letter is to a, written to a group of Christians, not individuals. And the whole frame of everything here is meant to be understood corporately. They're reading this corporately. They're, under, they're practicing this corporately. They're together in this. So when it says yourself, it's very plural, and it's meant to be that way. So we, we have a responsibility to each other, to keep each other in close to the love of God. 
Now, he even gives us three elements to this that I want to walk through. Uh, he talks about building yourself in the most holy, up in the most holy faith. He talks about praying in the Spirit. He talks about waiting on the Lord's mercy. So let's break these down. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Here's what that looks like. It's actually pretty simple. Fellowship, Scripture, repentance, obedience. Done. That's building yourself. I, was, I remember like when I first was like pulling out this book, I'm like, oh, I'm going to preach on this. Building yourselves up. Let's talk about better quiet times. Let's talk about updating our Hillsong playlist and really like learning to feel, feel the love of God. And I think that's great. I, wouldn't, I would certainly say that's awesome for healthy for your spirituality. But we got to read this corporately. And so what that means is what we're being called to is understanding what separates us from the love of God and guarding each other against that. For us, it looks like fellowship, scripture, repentance, and obedience. You need the fellowship, the kind of fellowship that puts you in the lives of other people and puts them in your life. In close enough proximity that they can be all up in your spiritual business and know what's going on with you. You need people looking out for you. You need to be looking out for your fellow believers and to be invested in each other's spiritual well-being. As, as a community, we have to take responsibility for one another. And we have to care about obedience to Scripture and be calling for repentance when we see sin taking hold of our brother and sister. The thing that puts distance between you and God is sin, right? So if you want to keep close to the love of God, that means dealing honestly with sin and striving for obedience. And you need people in your life who are going to help you do that. And if they do it well, it's likely they're going to be really annoying and obnoxious and inconvenient because we don't want to hear that stuff. But that's what, that's what people do when they care about your spiritual well-being. And people who don't are way more easy and fun to hang out with and spend time with. But they do not help you, and you cannot help them in their faith. When it comes to dealing with sin, honestly, at least. So if you ever find yourself feeling judged in the church because of the way you look, the way you dress, the color of your skin, your skills, your talents your lack of skills, your lack of talents. If you find yourself feeling judged because of those, of those things, that would be wrong. That would be sinful. Those Christians should repent of that. But if you find yourself feeling judged because you keep giving in to sin, and they see that, and they call you on it, they call you on your sin, and they push you towards obedience, that's not judgment. The word for that is admonishment. And it's a profound act of mercy when someone loves you enough to point something out to you that you don't want to hear, but you need to. Building yourselves up means having people and boundaries in place to help you stay on course and out of sin. And now a word on praying in the Spirit. In some circles, the assumption of that would mean praying in tongues and things like that. Um, but I think it's a little simpler for this passage. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells within you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You've been baptized in the Spirit. And so when you pray, as long as you're doing so sincerely, you are praying in the Spirit. It's already happening. You're probably already doing a good job of praying in the Spirit most of the time. 
The reality is when we pray in the Spirit, we're just pressing into God. We're trusting that the Spirit is in us. We're trusting that he's helping us do this. And we're believing in that. And we're praying. I think like there's a lot of things we can do to minimize distractions, work, find ways to clear our minds, uh, you know, find ways to engage ourselves better and more richly in our, in our prayers. I think that's all good stuff to practice, and that's really important. But let's not, let's not convince ourselves that we need to do something super spiritual to make sure our prayers are really in the Spirit. The Spirit is already in you. Even when you're not praying, he's praying for you. So when you are praying, and you are praying sincerely, you're praying in the Spirit. And when we do that together, the Spirit of God is here with us, helping us as a church. All right, moving on. Waiting on the Lord's mercy. I saw a, uh, a spoken word performance, kind of by accident, this spring. I mean, like, I was going to a concert... And I, it was like, a, it was a, three local musicians, or I thought, and, uh, and they, you know, they were performing, like, now just one of them happened to be not a musician, they were an artist, they were a spoken word poet. So it was sort of a pleasant surprise, I didn't sign up to come see a spoken word performer, but it was shockingly good, like it was profound, the things this person was saying. Now, she was uh, an African-American woman, and she was talking a lot about race and issues there. And she was, uh, she was talking about some experiences that she had um, visiting, going to like a, a wedding party that was at a park that was formerly a plantation where slaves were kept. And she talked about like the internal struggle of, that, of the history of that place and trying to celebrate something pleasant, but realizing the dark history of it and the, the juxtaposition of that and just the, the struggle that that created for her. And she made this line in one of her poems that like I heard it, like it stood out and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was absolutely profound. This, this statement was this. When sin goes unanswered for, pain sits still. I thought this is so true and, and, and just it applies in my understanding really broadly to a, a large spectrum of the things that we face. When your trust has been violated, when you have been betrayed, when someone has attacked you or caused you pain because they wanted to indulge in their own sin, that pain doesn't just disappear on its own. And that can justifiably make you angry, which can lead to bitterness and doesn't lead to healing. And so there you are, stuck with that. That's what you have. One commentary defined mercy as the compassion, clemency, or kindness extended to those who are in need. And I would argue that mercy cannot be shown from a distance. That it can only be shown when you are right there in person, close to the person that you want to show mercy to. I believe that Jude is acknowledging that when he's calling the believers to wait on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We are to remember that Jesus came here. He found us. He joined us in our flesh. He shared the human experience with us, painful as it were, so that he could secure the full and final healing that we long for. The complete redemption of all the damage done by sin. It won't come in this life, but it will come for us. 
that pain won't sit still forever. Waiting on the Lord's mercy is realizing our pain and taking steps forward anyways. Knowing the promise of final healing and restoration lies ahead. It's also realizing our sin and disobedience and also taking steps forward, knowing the promise of final healing and restoration lies ahead. God has promised judgment for those who have rejected him and attacked his church. He has promised you mercy. We don't wait on pain anymore. We wait on God's final mercy. That's the way forward from casualty to contender. So we keep each other close to the love of God. Our next action point, our final action point of a contender for the faith in the book of Jude, we're going to choose mercy over judgment. We're going to choose mercy over judgment. Once reminded of the mercy of God that he has for us, we are now asked to be agents of mercy for others. Let me read here, verse 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. You'll notice there's three types of, of others in this passage, right? First type is, just have mercy on those who doubt. So we'll call those doubters for today. We'll call those doubters. The next one is save others by snatching them out of the fire. The, so we'll call those runners, just for our purposes. We're going to call those runners. And then, uh, and then to others, show mercy with fear. Hating them in the garment stained by the flesh. We're going to call those attackers, and you'll see why. So we have three types of others that we are called and uh, instructed to show mercy too. So let's break those down. Doubters, uh, those who have some questions and maybe even need to push back on what they've been told about God. The question is, how do you react to them? I would suggest when they come to you, have time and space for them. Practice things like empathy and compassion. And if you don't know how to practice those, start learning. Resist the urge to know all the answers, and instead focus on trying to know their struggle. Make yourself a place that is safe for someone to express what is going on in their life and to know your opinion of them will never sour. That doesn't mean you won't be honest with them or that you won't call sin, sin, but make sure that they know they will never wear out their welcome with you. Have mercy on doubters. To others, snatch out of the fire. The runners, those who have been persuaded by the lies of false teaching. They've walked or are walking away from the Lord and they need to be warned that they've been lied to and deceived. We have to go after them. They may not want you to. They may reject your attempts. You can't force anyone to follow God or to obey God. But there's, there's mercy in the attempt of wanting to warn people about what's happening and to bring truth. And I believe that everybody who has been lied to deserves to hear the truth. Even if they don't want to accept it, even if they're not ready to believe it, we have to try. 
Now, in the interest of being super practical, I'm going to offer, actually, in case you're thinking, oh, no, I'm thinking of somebody right now. What do I do? How do I approach them? I'm going to offer two approaches. There's probably a lot. This is just to be practical and offer some nice suggestions, okay? First approach. We'll call this the gentle approach. Have a conversation. Are you okay? Is there anything I can do? I'm really glad you're here right now. You're really important to me and to us. And I know you're walking through some really difficult things, and I would like to be there for you if you want that. We'll call it the gentle approach. Now a firm approach. What you are doing is wrong and dangerous. You need to repent because you need the love of God in your life. And I promise to stand with you through all of it if you let me. The firm approach. Whatever the case, and however equipped you feel or don't feel, when we see those who are falling into the hands of liars and false teachers, we have to chase after them. We have to bring the truth to them and invite them back. All right, third, our attackers. They have strong, strong language here, right? Uh, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. These are evil people, and you are supposed to protect yourself from them. There has to be guards up. So false teachers, it tells us, show mercy still, but remain protective of yourself and other potential victims. I think this is interesting because it's not something we often hear, that if you have come under attack by a false teacher or someone who has set out to harm you, masked as a Christian but was really acting to harbor their own sin, showing mercy to them is confronting their lies and telling them to stop. Now suppose they repent. Let's suppose you say, you're lying, you're a false teacher, you need to repent and stop what you're doing because it's evil. Let's suppose in the very unlikely event they, they say, you're right, I'm wrong. I would like to repent. I'd like to be restored back to the faith, back to the church. What do I do? It could be possible that forgiveness and redemption could happen in a situation like that. First off, I would suggest, I'm saying you, but first boundary is never be alone in a situation like that. It should never be you on your own. And Jude is telling you, set boundaries. You can tell a person that they don't get to have fellowship with you anymore after the damage they've done, after the abuse they've committed. A false teacher in the church might actually repent of their sin and the damage, but they should still not be allowed to have normal fellowship with that same church. There has to be protection in place. There has to be boundaries set that we have to be careful, even in a situation like that. You can open up doors for them for other opportunities, but you will not keep their secrets and you will not give them full access to the people they originally intended to harm. Mercy is not without boundaries for those who have tried and succeeded to bring harm to the church. So I would summarize these three people up by simply saying, mercy is not always going to look the same. When you choose mercy over shame, over anger, over revenge, over any of the normal emotional reactions that you would have, that anyone would have in, a, in the face of such hurt and betrayal, when you choose mercy in those circumstances, you demonstrate the power of God in your life and you invite others into the power of God along with you. That's redemptive power. 
Mercy is a choice that we can make. It's a profound reaction to sin and brokenness. It may not be your first reaction, but Jude empowers you to make it your final reaction. Mercy is God's final reaction to your sin, and he can make you an agent of mercy in the lives of those he loves. I was homeschooled in junior high. I think it was, what, 7th, 8th, ninth grade, yeah. And, uh, and during those years, uh, I think my mom, like my mom was in good faith trying really hard to be a good homeschooling mother, but I don't think she was very wired for it. She wasn't the most structured person for it. And she was also going through a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in, um, in her health and stuff. So uh, there was a lot that she couldn't do. Um, and along the way, I kind of learned that as a you know, kid, I realized that my mom was not really checking a lot of my work that I was doing. And she was also not doing a good job of hiding the answer keys. So I would sneak around and grab that stuff up and I would whip up my assignments, no problem. Right? I started cheating. And, uh, and what happened then is I just made it a little bit more frequent, a little more frequent, and it became habit. And then it became necessary. Because I realized at a certain point that I'd gotten far enough along down the road of cheating because my mom was not checking anything at that point. I didn't even need the answer keys. If I just wrote in any gibberish, she was still not going to see it. Again, I don't really blame her for it because I think there, it's not, it's, there's a lot going on there. But, but, uh, but I realized like, I, could just, I just didn't have to do any of it. So I got to the point where I also realized I didn't know how to do any of it anymore, especially the math. I had gotten so far down the road that I was not going to be able to, even if I tried really hard, not going to be able to understand this math because I had never learned it. I had been cheating so long. And, uh, and so I had to keep it up. I just stuck with it. I was kind of freaked out at that point. I was really honestly just scared and I hated it now, but I still did it because I didn't know what else to do. I felt like that was my only choice at this point, and I stuck with it. Now, eventually the day came when my mom checked. I don't know why. I don't know what inspired her to take a look at those books that I had been doing my homework in, but she did, and, uh, and she made a huge discovery that nothing of it was made any sense, and I had not done my homework in a very long time. And, uh, and I remember the day really well, actually, um, because my dad was at work, my mom was home, it was a typical school day, uh, and she didn't actually say much to me. She realized it when she kind of asked me some questions. And I, at that point, I, I was like, I, I've been caught. I didn't really have anything to hide at this point. So I just told her, yeah, that's what's going on. And she just set it aside and it's like, we're going to have to wait till your dad gets home. We, don't, we know what that means, right? So I was like, this is the worst day ever. I got to like wait and see what my dad's going to do. And I, I pretty much just hid out in my room in the basement for the rest of the day. I heard dad get home. I didn't emerge. And, uh, and I, mom, I don't know what conversation took place. I don't know how it went down, but mom certainly showed dad everything. And, uh, and dad just stuck with that for a little while. I think he was going through things and looking and checking for himself. And, uh, and eventually, at some point, he called me up out of my room upstairs. So I did. I come upstairs. I sit down at the kitchen table across from him. And he begins to ask me some questions. He starts investigating, Right? How long had I been doing this? What had I been doing? Where had I been? Where had I been pulling out more stuff? I mean, and I was, at this point, like I, like I said, I hated it anyway. So I was, 
there's a little part of me that's kind of relieved to not have to lie about this anymore. And so I just divulged everything. I told everything. I hid nothing about it. Right? I just told him everything. And, uh, and we went through it all. And, uh, and then we've, we sort of the conversation turns and he starts to like examine where I'm at and figure out precisely how far behind I am. And so we start working on a plan and strategy to start catching up. So I can learn the things that I haven't been learning and, uh, and hopefully get back on track so I can even, you know, graduate high school on time and I don't get really far behind. Um, and so he, the conversation turns to that and we do, we're problem solving and we're strategizing and we're making plans. Mom had decided she's not homeschooling me again after this year. I'm going back to public school. I was like, that's fine. So, but we have to finish up this year and we're going to spend the year getting caught up. But there was a point in this, like, interaction that I realized like, it just dawned on me. Hey, I'm not getting grounded for this. Like, I'm not getting, I, he could ruin my world with this. He could have, there are so many things he could have, do, could have done to me, and he could have thrown the book at me. He had every right to be angry. He had every right to burn me to the ground over this. But he didn't say a harsh word in the whole interaction. He didn't say a negative thing. He didn't cut me down. He didn't ground me. He didn't punish me whatsoever. His plan, he saw that I was in a hole. He saw that I dug myself deep and I couldn't get out of myself. And he just decided to help me out. And that was it. And that was so profound for me. Because when I realized that, like I knew he had made a choice along the way. That he was not going to punish me. He was going to forgive me and he was going to help me. And I knew that that was such an act of mercy that I didn't deserve. And I felt so grateful for it. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to catch back up and to not have to lie and be able to get back into like where I'm supposed to be because I was so ashamed of that. And he helped me out of that and restored me back to what I needed. And that was so profound for me. Interestingly, I think that probably makes me the only person you know that's ever been kicked out of homeschool. But I started, uh, I st- my sophomore year, I went into uh, public high school and graduated on time and all of that. But I had such a profound choice. And that stuck with me. I, I realized that I wanted to be that guy sometime that when somebody came to me in so much trouble that they know what they've done is wrong and they just need help. I want to be able to be ready to help. I want to offer mercy instead of judgment. Your first reaction to the damage done by sin doesn't have to be your final reaction. You are no longer casualties of war. You are contenders for the faith. As contenders, we trust the gospel. We speak up and we speak out. We claim victory in Christ. We claim each other. We keep each other close to the love of God. And we choose mercy over judgment. I'm going to close in prayer. But before I do, you might want to grab a paper and pen or your phone or something. Because during this prayer, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask God to call to your mind someone in your life that needs to be shown some mercy. And that you would be the agent of that mercy for them. So I'm going to ask God to call somebody in mind. I'm going to take a minute to, to let God speak to us, and then we'll, we'll wrap up our prayer. And I encourage you, if, that, if a name, a face, if somebody comes to mind, write that down, and don't let that go, okay? Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. You have seen our sin and you have seen our pain. You didn't just see it. You met us here and you felt what we feel and you experienced what we experienced and and you joined us so that you could save us all from it and secure our future with you. That mercy is beyond what we could have ever asked for. God, we know that there are people in our lives who need to be shown some mercy too. Whether they are struggling with doubt or drowning in sin and shame or quietly growing angrier or more bitter each day or they're confused or looking for clarity, whatever the case may be for them, God, we ask right now that you would call to mind someone that we need to reach out to and pursue with mercy. Who is that, God? God, we ask that you would watch over us and protect us from false teaching and lies about you. Convict us of our sin and surround us with people who love us enough to call us to repentance and obedience. And we thank you that you are a God who is keeping us in your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.